Hello and welcome to Zeroing In, Grosvenor Britain and Ireland's sustainability podcast with me, James Manning, Senior Manager in Sustainability and Innovation at Grosvenor. Today, unfortunately, Alex Clark, my normal co-host, can't join us, so I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Eve Bellas. Hi Eve, and thanks so much for co-hosting today's podcast. No worries, James, and thanks for having me. Um, for those that don't know me, I'm a Sustainability and Innovation Coordinator at Grosvenor. And this week, we are zeroing in on biodiversity, a critical factor in our planet's stability and habitability. Currently, around 1.7 million species of animals, plants and fungi have been recorded, but scientists estimate that this is just a small proportion of the true number, with some saying it's likely almost 9 million exist, illustrating the mind-boggling beauty and complexity of our natural world. Absolutely incredible, as you say, Eve. Um, I guess, though, the worrying part is that many of these species are becoming endangered or extinct, largely due to human activities. In fact, it's estimated that the extinction rate of species is about a thousand times higher than before humans dominated the planet. Yes, but to help us delve further into the importance of biodiversity and what we can do here at Grosvenor to enhance the natural world around us, we are delighted to be uh, joined by Ed Eichen, the Head of Landscape, Horticulture and Research at Wakehurst, part of the Kew Royal Botanic Gardens. That's right, from chairing London Parks and Gardens Trust, being head gardener at Nyman's um, National Trust and advising us on landscaping here at Grosvenor, Ed adopts an ecological approach to understanding landscapes and increasing the sustainability of horticulture. Um, really excited to speak with you today, Ed, and welcome Hello. to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Just to kick us off, can we go back to basics and find out what biodiversity actually means and why it's so important? So biodiversity, most simply, is a shortening of biological diversity, uh, a calculation of the amount of species, normally within a specific space, a habitat, a landscape, an ecosystem, or a biome. Uh, there are parts of the world that have very high biodiversity uh, and a very high amount of what we call endemism, i.e. species that only occur in one specific place. Other parts of the world, like the UK, have less species, but they're still equally important. There's something about the numbers, but there's also about what those species do, which is just as significant. Fantastic. Why is it so important that we have this diversity, these, these variety of species within the ecosystem? There's a number of things. So th there's a massive amount of interconnectedness. No one species exists in isolation. There are flows within an ecosystem. So there'll be services provided Either way, a species being both food, a pollinator, or potentially you know, helping to recycle an element of the ecosystem, you know, breaking down organic matter. In terms of why it matters, there's a, there's a big sort of resilience factor. So biodiverse systems have a lot of kind of inherent cushioning within them. A big event, a stress event, like, you know, terrible weather. hits Which we've seen recently quite a bit now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the ability to kind of absorb the, the sort of disturbance from that external event can be much, much higher in a biodiverse system because there's just, there's more complexity there. To, to You can write some of it off to the event mm. um, and then there's sort of perhaps more ways to respond as well. You know, if you've got one species, it's perhaps only got one way to respond to that stress. Multiple species will respond in different ways and the system will be less devastated as a consequence. We talk a lot, I mean, particularly in the built environment, but I think everyone talks about this, is 
creating greener spaces, adding more greenery. But actually, correct me if I'm wrong, just having a green space is not always enough. It's making sure it's biodiverse at the same time. You can have a field and if it's just grass, yeah. there's only one species there and it is not as adaptable, it's not as resilient. Is, is that correct assumption? Yeah, it is. A single species of something will offer perhaps one source of food, one habitat, but that will be it. You think about a, a really diverse London garden square where you've got perhaps three or four physical structural layers, you know, like a uh, some sort of herbaceous layer, an element of grass, trees of different heights. You've suddenly got multiple food sources, multiple places to overwinter, multiple, how would I describe it? it, it you know, in, in a summer environment, if you're sustaining a high level of invertebrates, there'll be more to eat and there'll just be a sort of a greater activity within the ecosystem. So it's about habitat diversity and a consequence, a high number of species that can be sustained within that biodiverse system. Biodiversity net gain, can you just elaborate a bit on that? So that is the increase in biodiversity and that's measured how? Is that the number of species that you have in an area? And and, and how do you sort of understand those other factors around it? So how they interact with each other? The guiding principle is a numerical one. There is there is a, a factor about habitat condition as well. And yes, it's, it's, it's essentially saying that, you know, if you're going to develop a space, what have you started with? And, and where do you want to, to go in terms of, sort of number of species? And the net gain, I think, is set as a 10% gain. Like I say, it's, it seems like a great foundation, but I hope as, as a country we start to build on it and start to ask more complex questions like one, there's a time factor. You can't just like measure biodiversity after a year and say, great, we've done our job because, you know, our, our, our commitment to our ecosystems is to create long-term stability. You know, you are talking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So I hope there's almost a sense of a bond, you know, that kind of commits us to long-term care for nature. But uh, yes, I, I think also that that kind of that, that interconnected factor is, is, is crucial. You know, how is the landscape functioning What's what's working? Uh, how are these species supporting each other? And the final factor, which is the, so the great unknown, but something that we have to all embrace much more as landscape managers, is below ground biodiversity. So what's going on in the soil? So the, the very, very complex below ground communities of fungi, bacteria, protozoa, that once serve an absolutely crucial role in supporting above ground biodiversity. You cannot separate what's happening above ground and below ground but also provide another range of crucial ecosystem services like perhaps most critically carbon sequestration. You know, you, you, surely at some point we have to do a below ground survey before we start any development and then make sure that we're kind of building on that for the long term too. And, and how on earth do you measure the number of species in an area? So if I looked at even just like a, somewhere like Grosvenor Square or somewhere like Hyde Park, I wouldn't even know where to begin to count those species. Do you have to do some sort of sampling? How do you actually get that estimate of of the total? There's some pretty traditional ecological methods for invertebrates. It's it's using basically dividing a square like that up into subsets, into squares, and using things like pan traps to just monitor the amount of invertebrates building in a specific area. You might sort of do walkover surveys to complement it, but you might also co-op some of your citizens. So getting users of the square to download something like iNaturalist on their phones and just take as many photos every time they see something with wings, photograph it. And that can actually be a really useful data layer. We can do quite a lot of work using sort of remote sensing, so flying certain machines over spaces. And in terms of below ground, we do things like DNA sampling. So we'll take a whole load of soil cores and you can sequence 
the basically the biological matter within the soils um, and kind of you can barcode them to work out what certain species are. So fungi, you can work out through a sort of a, a trace element, if you like, or sort of a, um, a sort of a chemical signature. Wow. So seriously complex, but seriously interesting. Yeah. And I was just interested in, say, in urban environments where they are really developed and the biodiversity is a lot lower. What are the key ways we can try and improve that? I suppose to be driven by a sort of a systems thinking to a certain extent. So looking at really successful, like natural or semi-natural habitats and saying, well, what are the key components within that habitat? And inevitably, there will be a, um, a, a degree of structural complexity. Like again, there won't be a plant of just one shape. There'll be multiple shapes, you know, like rosette-forming plants and, and emergent plants that sort of push through. There'll be vegetation that d- does different things at different times of year. There'll be light and shade regimes. There will be places which are more enclosed and places that are more open. So it's trying to always be driven by some of the structural factors and then thinking, well, which species in my urban environment will be most successful at doing that? So, you know, urban environments are different. They're hotter, they're drier, there's more, there's more drought stress. There might be kind of more flooding if the, if the supporting drainage isn't as good. So you may not go for a straight kind of like-for-like species swap, but you might pick things that have the right kind of structural uh, abilities or ecological abilities to fill those kind of gaps in your specification. How do we put this price on biodiversity? How do we best put that monetary value on it? Yeah, it, it's a very live question. So we had this landmark report earlier in the year. It was commissioned by the Treasury, written by Professor Sapatha Dasgupta, the economics of biodiversity. His opening resounding statement was, you know, the biggest issue with nature and the, the benefits we get from nature is they're often mobile, invisible and silent. Um, you know, it is very hard to put a price on them. Um, you know, the classic thing might be a very, very functional system upstream of a city that almost is silently um, stopping flooding, cleaning water, cleaning air. And the removal of that may happen in a completely sort of separate economic process to the way that the city is managed. So um, it, it explores quite a few different methods, you know, really quite direct methods where people are literally paid to look after their biodiversity because you have been able to calculate the value of the ecosystem service that that biodiversity provides or a big focus on localism and letting specific local cultural practices really thrive because they may be very protective of the biodiversity. I think it's a whole complex set of solutions and very focused on what the, the best local application is. But measuring biodiversity better, understanding how some of these really fundamental public goods like clean air and clean water directly derived from biodiversity is a key part and there's a whole load of institutes really trying to revolutionize how we measure and how we value some of these services better. I think people are understanding more the value of it. We're seeing the the wonderful David Attenborough on TV doing his documentaries. I think people are getting to grips with it more. However, I wonder what you think. Do you think people have the same understanding? They obviously see these fantastic images of nature and, and they understand it's important. But I wonder if because we can measure carbon emissions, because we can measure the amount of waste we produce or how much recycling, biodiversity seems much more intangible than that. How do we go about sort of um, making it easier to engage with, easier to understand for everyone? Yeah, you're right. You can be cynical about markets, but the ultimate thing is that development has a very clear market. Carbon has has an increasingly strong market. Biodiversity doesn't yet have one. So I think for those who who need numbers, better valuations matter. I think to get people engaged, it is measuring. So it's saying, 
looking at a factor like well-being, you know, how much better do we feel when we walk through a biodiverse landscape? You know, we've all got to know our local landscapes better over the last 18 months, but which ones have we, have we been actively seeking out? Because we know it stimulates us. So I don't know, the woodland where song thrushes sing it in the evening, how many times do we go there? Because we know it's just going to make us feel better. And again, these things can be measured. And it's, it's not kind of separating out biodiversity and carbon as well, you know, because carbon uptake won't just be about conifer plantations. It will be about our heathlands and our peat bogs and our grasslands as well. For any one habitat, we shouldn't be too preoccupied with one ecosystem service because the best habitats provide us with a whole range of services. And it's kind of getting the measures right and then also asking how we can turn those measures into stories. For people that just want to hear a story, that they want to understand why they're feeling better in this place, how do you kind of translate some of that more metric-based conversations into something just really uplifting and engaging? And do you think that comes through from just like really supporting local knowledge of the landscape and and not sort of trying to fit a one-size-fits-all framework to it? Yeah, I really do. There's been some really interesting references to how Britain might look if we play through all of our tree planting targets and how it might get back to more of like a medieval landscape. And that really interests me because there have been times where as a nation, we've kind of owned the spaces around us very directly. And you think about, you know, the medieval commons approach that everyone would have a little bit of land that they cared for. And I, I do think inherently we have some natural instincts to steward the landscapes around us. So part of me thinks that we should just be stimulating this natural desire to care for the spaces closest to us. And to not kind of say that we're just disconnected from nature, it's perhaps just the connections have just briefly been switched off because our, our lives have been too busy or, you know, we've been very in a, in a very urban environment. I, I, I think we inherently can look after this, look after space as well if we're empowered to do so. And I think it's even more so now as a result of COVID, you were saying, I think people are valuing nature much more. They're valuing that biodiversity. Do you think COVID-19 has had an impact on biodiversity? And if so, do you think it will be a lasting one, whether it's negative or positive? You know, there's been references, you know, it feels like there's a lot more nature around. I think we've some of our natural in, observation instincts have just been, again, switched on again. I, th- I think we're naturally quite good at observing. I think it suits as well as the species. So perhaps, again, we'd be more cognizant of variety and diversity and consequently biodiversity. And perhaps we're we're more conscious of what... Paying attention a little bit more now. I think we're we're stuck at home. We're looking out the window more often. Yeah. And and suddenly, yeah, the sort of your local field becomes a sort of a theatre of entertainment, doesn't it? It's your holiday. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's about as good as it gets. So again, I I hope our natural ability to observe variety and diversity and, and perhaps start to sort of make connections between that and what appears to be good land management. Um, I, I hope that's I hope that's there. What do you think are biggest challenges um, to improving biodiversity as like a global um, effort? I think there's a real challenge around carbon targets. Uh, carbon targets need to happen really, really rapidly. I mean, it's it feels like such an accelerated conversation. One because of COP, two because of things like net zero by 2050, and also just this awareness of all these extreme weather events. Um, but I still want to just plug in a little bit of evidence gathering before, you know, we, we commit to changing our landscape dramatically in one direction. Is that something else that you can you can measure the biodiversity now? But as you said, you don't want to go back and measure it in a year's time and say, oh, we're done. Well done, everyone. Pat on the back. These are some long term changes that need to happen and we need to monitor and measure them over an extended period of time. And actually, 
that can be really difficult. People, governments change, companies move on to new developments or whatever it might be. Having that consistent approach, I can imagine, is a big challenge for you guys, especially at Q, but in any organisation. Yeah, it's complex and it's labour intensive. Um, You also have, you know, even if you do something really good over an extended period of time, you'll have countervailing factors. You know, you'll have climate change, uh, you will have... Um, impacts in the areas around where you're kind of seeking to achieve a net gain. So modelling your desired improvement against threats as well is, is, is a sort of crucial factor. I know we've talked uh, like a lot about active measures, uh, like from our side, trying to increase biodiversity. Like, is there merit in just letting nature take its course and more just protecting areas and trusting that they, those systems are robust? Yeah, I think that there is in some instances. I mean, my view in the UK is is most of our uh, sort of kind of wild systems are really semi-natural systems. They've all um, evolved to a certain extent through interventions from us. So like heathlands, we basically arrest succession on heathlands. Uh, grasslands, you know, we we cut them to sustain them as grasslands. So it's kind of knowing, it's knowing where an intervention from us is actually a good thing um, and can actually potentially increase or sustain biodiversity. And then it's also sort of knowing where where sort of stepping back could lead to a better outcome. I think particularly if if management resources are really limited. But I, I guess my my general sense is that we need people in our landscapes. You know, we we have grown up as a species shaping and interacting with our landscape. And just every once in a while, we, we've got out of kilter with it and we've perhaps kind of pushed it too hard or too far. But I think we've got to have lives and livelihoods within our landscapes we've got to be able to to, to farm them to to use them for leisure to, to live within them uh, and that for me great creates the best kind of sense of coexistence and is ultimately the, the best way to support biodiversity i think that's a fantastic message I, I guess just one more thing and we're trying to ask all of the people that we we speak with um whatever the background is whether it's they're involved in the waste world the the, the carbon world or the biodiversity world and nature um if you could ask people to do one thing to be more sustainable what would it be it's, it's a really good question i guess you know what can people most easily influence it probably is their garden isn't it and it's probably just have one year where you do something less in your garden and you see what happens. You hold your nerve. So just, just as a very personal example, I've probably always been a bit anti-dandelion, like, you know, gardeners by their nature have to remove them. This year, I just watched dandelions flower and set seed. Um, a whole load of goldfinches descended on our garden and gorged wow. them on dandelion seeds. It was the most beautiful thing I've seen in a long time. So that reminded me that every now and again, I need to do just a little bit less. I think that's fantastic. And uh, I'll be doing that with my balcony. Uh, I dream of a garden one day, but I'll definitely try that with my balcony. Um, But no, that's fantastic. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really interesting discussion um, and loved hearing all about biodiversity. I feel much more knowledgeable and and I'll definitely be checking out that. Is it, what's the app called? iNaturalist, was it? iNaturalist, yeah. It's, It's just a brilliant platform for kind of absorbing people's observations. Fantastic, yeah. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ed. Amazing.